Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I support a growing community of top climate and ESG leaders as the Chief Experience Officer at Nations Wealth, and I'm an advisor to the climate practice at IDEO. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and when it comes to climate action, I know I'll be a lifelong learner always looking to have more impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you found us. Sign up for updates and suggest ideas for future episodes at investedinclimate.com. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Thanks for joining. The goal is the North Star that remains the same. The how you get there may change. And so when we set the goal, we were very clear that we're going to go after achieving it with everything that we've got. The ambiguity, I guess, is more in the like, exactly how are we going to get there and let's hold space for what we think is going to work to potentially change over time. And I think it's this level of ambition that makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable that you know your goal is is bold enough with a level of pragmatism that says, yes, and I know I have the tools and the leaders that are going to help me get after it. Hey, everyone. We all know that companies around the world are working to reduce their emissions and hopefully achieve net zero. But what does it take to set up a sustainability program? What are the steps in the process and what are the considerations along the way and who are the partners one might work with? Most of this work happens behind closed doors, but sharing insights from corporate sustainability journeys can accelerate progress. That's why Atlassian, a technology company with a real commitment to addressing climate change, decided to open up their own process and share what they learned in a really clear and straightforward playbook. To learn more, I sat down with Atlassian Chief Sustainability Officer Jessica Hyman. Full disclosure, Jess is a member of Nationswell, the executive membership network and advisory where I get to support impact and sustainability leaders like Jess. In today's conversation, we walk step-by-step through their sustainability journey, from getting started, building internal buy-in, finding the right vendors, partners, and reporting protocols to reducing scope one, two, and three emissions, to reporting on progress as well as setbacks, and much more. Whether or not you're a corporate sustainability leader, this episode will help you understand what companies around the world are actually doing to address climate change. Enjoy. Hey, Jess, welcome to Invested in Climate. Thanks for having me, Jason. Well, we of course know each other through Nationswell, where I get to work and where you are an esteemed member. Uh, reminder, if you haven't already signed up for our Sustainability Outlook Roundtable in a couple of weeks, it'll be a good one. But we're here to discuss your work as Chief Sustainability Officer of Atlassian. Before we get into your current work, let's learn a bit about you. You've been working in sustainability for 15 years. What got you interested in climate and the environment, and what was your path to your current role? I think I got really lucky in some ways. My first internship after college was at the UN University over in Bonn, Germany. And I really just wanted to get back to Europe. And I I landed in kind of a dream scenario where I got to be at the UN and exposed to all the different issues they were working on and researching at the time. And it happened to be Ban Ki-moon was organizing the Conference on Environmental Change and Migration. And I think it was the first one that they had had. And for my background, I had studied psychology and had a close 
connection to the environment, but I never understood the connection between people and planet the way I did editing abstracts for that conference and just realizing the impact climate change was going to have on society and geopolitics. And that really got me interested in a career in the space. Amazing. Well, you and I share something in that I also started my career in Europe and definitely remember the feeling of just wanting to get back there. (laughs) Tell us about your work at BSR. I'm sure it taught you a lot that you're using today. I think this is another area where I really feel like I got so lucky to land one of my earliest career moves at BSR and was fortunate enough to have a really long tenure with them. The first kind of projects I was working on was a grant project that focused on supply chain risk in Central America. But I also got exposed to projects like our Human Rights Working Group and a women's empowerment strategy, for example, over the years. So really got to see this cross-section of issues and industries and the way that sustainability showed up so differently depending on kind of the geo and the company. And I think for me, the biggest highlight of BSR, aside from the exposure to that broad landscape, was just the people that I got to learn from there. Dunstan Hope, who is a a longtime BSR alumni now, ran the tech and human rights program, and he's the one that hired me. So I got to spend a lot of time learning from what I would consider one of the greats in this space. And I also got to work under Laura Gitman, who's now their chief impact officer, and of course, Aaron Kramer, who's an incredibly inspirational CEO. So I just don't know that you can find much better better people than are at BSR to, to learn from. And I think that experience taught me all of the expertise in that room has to come with a sense of humility. And I think that's something that everyone at BSR really brings to the table. And there's just sort of this awareness that as much as we can be experts in this space, it is one that is constantly evolving and constantly changing. And, and you have to always be learning to be able to kind of keep up and stay on the forefront of where we're going. Amazing. Well, that humility really shines and even in some of the thought leadership that you've shared and that we'll talk about later today. Let's hear about the work that you're doing now. I'm sure many listeners know Atlassian quite well, but for those that aren't familiar with the company, help us get grounded. What is Atlassian and what are your core products? The mission of Atlassian is really to unleash the potential of every team. But the way that we do that is through team collaboration software. So if you haven't heard of Atlassian, you may have heard of Jira before or Confluence. And we've just recently acquired Loom, which I'm sure a lot of folks have heard of. So so hopefully one of those rings a bell. Right. And Atlassian is not a huge company. You have about 10,000 employees, if I'm not mistaken. Yet you've taken an interesting leadership stance in opening up and sharing your sustainability journey with others. Let's start with understanding why. Why go through the effort of sharing your story of developing your own sustainability goals and the lessons that you've learned along the way? You know, we've always had this sense since starting our sustainability program that companies, including Atlassian, have a responsibility to take action when it comes to addressing climate change for our people and our planet. But like I said, our mission is about unleashing the potential of every team. So There's this way in which it's never been about just what Atlassian does, but really what's the influence we can have here and how do we get a team of companies together collaborating to decarbonize together? And so I think it's that sense that climate change very much feels impossible alone, but very possible if we go it together. And the guide, the Don't F*** the Planet guide that we just put out where version two just came out a couple of months ago, the purpose of it really is to share our own journey so that others could get there faster. And it kind of covers our whole experience to date from when we started the program back in 2016 to setting our first goals and transforming our operations to get there and covers kind of 
not just what has happened, but like I said, we're on version two. So we kind of committed, hey, it's not enough to just put this out and have it be a one and done, but how do we make sure we're updating the guide as we hit new milestones and go farther? And it's really a, a progress over perfection kind of narrative. I don't think we have the answers to everything. We certainly don't. And our way is not the way of every company, but we just wanted to be open and share our journey and some real world examples in the hopes that other companies have some examples to go off of, or at least feel just more confident getting started. Amazing. Many people don't know this, but a funny thing is that when you set up a podcast, you actually have to choose whether or not you're going to use expletives. And this is actually- <laughs> Did I get cut? <laughs> well, yeah, this is a G-rated podcast. We'll refer to your guide as Don't F the Planet. Fair enough. That'll work. <laughs> Tell us about the process of going to your leadership and saying, hey, we want to develop this report. We want to share our lessons. And was it something that they immediately resonated with? Was it something that took some convincing? And it was probably something new for everyone to think about. It actually feels very natural for Atlassian. We have an Atlassian playbook on our website that is essentially sharing not just how to collaborate using our tools, which again, Atlassian makes software products that help teams collaborate, but then the playbook really goes with it and it's the how to collaborate, best practices for teams. So in a lot of ways, we already had an example of sort of exporting the way that we work and sharing that with our customers And that was kind of the genesis for this guide, which is, hey, it's not enough to just talk about the goals that we've put out there, the progress we're making, but actually how do we export and share some of that, not just with our customers, but with peers in the industry or or anyone trying to get started. So if anything, I think everyone was really excited about this and that it really helped us to live our mission in kind of going about this in a team way. Well, let's get into the meat. You developed the Don't F the Planet playbook to walk others through the process of setting up a sustainability program. So let's go through some of the main steps in your process and the insights they surfaced. You began with materiality assessment. Let's explain the jargon. What is a materiality assessment and what did you learn? We started our program back in 2016. And at that time, we noticed that the expectations from our employees and our customers and even investors, that core stakeholder group, we're really starting to shift. And we wanted to make sure that we could kind of apply our values to the world around us and not in a reactive way, but in a more proactive way. Let's be really clear about what issues we care about, where we have leverage, where we want to make a stand so that we have this real sense of direction. And early on, as part of that, we said, okay, how do we get there? How do we land that framework? A materiality assessment is just a tool or a process that we use to land those priority issues. And one of the issues that came up was climate change. And the reason for that was it was an emerging issue for businesses and there were stakeholder expectations for companies to act on it. In addition to that, we had leverage to drive impact so we could change our own operations, for example. And then we saw the real business risk and opportunity ahead. In other words, not acting had a risk here. And being a first mover had a huge opportunity for us. It really got climate change in that upper quadrant of one of the areas we wanted to prioritize. And while the materiality assessment, I think, helped us land what are the issues we want to care about, really the first step in the process was then saying, okay, great. We know we care about this issue. We need to set a goal around it. It's not enough to believe that companies have a responsibility to act or to say that we care. You have to really plant a flag in the ground. And that came for us by setting our first two goals, one through RE100 and one through Science-Based Targets Initiative. 
Great. Tell us about those goals and what it took to then share it. I know that you did a road show taking your sustainability vision on the road, get, gathering feedback from executives and building alignment. So curious about how those goals developed and how they resonated. I think the RE100 goal was a little bit easier and that's why we started there. The reason for that is we knew kind of doing some back of the envelope math based on our emissions profile, which we had because we had had to do some compliance work in the UK. So we had a general sense of our electricity use and emissions from that. And with RE100, we knew we could achieve the goal by purchasing energy attribute certificates. Obviously, there are other tools and ways to get there, but there was this clarity that, hey, we know one path to get there. We know it would be achievable for us. This is something we can commit to and sign up for now. So in some ways, that got us out of the gates with a climate goal. But it just so happened that it was UN Climate Week, I think a couple months after we signed up for RE100. And at the time, the UN Secretary General, the call to action was for companies to set a science-based target. And we had this momentum from just having signed up for RE100, and we really wanted to respond to that commitment. And so that one is one where we went a little bit harder and doing a roadshow and galvanizing commitment from the top. And what makes the science-based targets harder, at least it did at the time, is it also includes scope three. And so you just have less control there. And especially when we set the goal, it was less clear how we were going to achieve it. You have to be able to kind of balance the what we know about how we'll get there and what we know about the goal and what we don't know and hold both and have the trust that you've got the leadership buy-in to deal with whatever roadblocks kind of get in your way. Great. And RE100, we should clarify, is 100% renewable energy. And was there a specific time frame that you committed to? Yes, we committed to 2025, but actually we got there within the first year. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> Something that clearly stands out from all my work with sustainability leaders and that really echoes loudly in your guide is just how cross-functional sustainability work actually is. Your guide describes how everyone from sales and marketing to investor relations to real estate contributed to your strategy. And getting comments up front is one thing, but sustaining collaboration and making sure your goals remain priorities for everyone is really another story. Has that sort of internal collaboration been a challenge? And what have you learned as you've moved from strategy development to execution? The internal collaboration is so core to every step of this work, from setting the goals in the first place to executing on them. It's not something that's a one and done. So yes, we had to do that to set our science-based target in the first place, but every part of that goal, achieving it or the sub goals that are attached to it requires so much engagement. And I think some of the things that we've learned is that having a sustainability person or a team is just absolutely not going to get you there. You have to have leaders that are going to set the level of ambition and they're going to hold the company accountable to progress. And what that does is in moments of high friction, which any of these goals are going to have friction, it's, it's not going to be a win-win for everyone. You need that leader to be able to clear a pathway for the work to happen. So for me, I meet with our founders and Mike in particular every quarter. And he always asks me, tell me what's going well, but actually I'm more interested in the challenges. What are you up against? How can I help remove roadblocks for you so you can move the work forward? In parallel, you can't just work with senior leaders. You also have to have the team on the ground that's driving the progress. And that's multiple teams for us, whether it's the finance team, the legal team, the travel team. There's so many folks around Atlassian that, that have helped us actually make progress. And we have to make sure that for them, the priorities are clear and that 
we can have the really tough conversations. Like I said, the sustainability work would just get done. We wouldn't have to have goals if it was easy. The hard work is actually leaning into the friction and where our priorities actually don't align, where our goals don't align, and making sure that we can kind of make those trade-offs together to balance all of those competing priorities. Jess, we often hear about companies making net zero commitments before they actually know how exactly they'll achieve them. You have the net zero commitments of reaching net zero by 2040. Was that true for you of not necessarily knowing exactly all of the ways in which you would achieve the goal? I think for us, the goal is the North Star that remains the same. The how you get there may change. And so when we set the goal, we were very clear that we're going to go after achieving it with everything that we've got. The ambiguity, I guess, is more in the like, exactly how are we going to get there and let's hold space for what we think is going to work to potentially change over time. And I think it's this level of ambition that makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable that you know your goal is is bold enough with a level of pragmatism that says, yes, and I know I have the tools and the leaders that are going to help me get after it. Because I think for any of us now to go in and to set a goal that is an empty promise you're going to get called out down the road. It's not going to behoove you. Your employees are going to be asking you about it. You're going to lose trust with your customers and your investors. I think we have to think of these goals like any other company goal. And sometimes companies miss their goals and you don't change the goal, but you certainly have to be open and honest about having missed it and talk about what your path is going to be to get back on track. A good example of this actually is business travel because we set our science-based target in 2019, probably two months before covid So you had a certain sense of what it would take to reduce business travel from our FY19 baseline. And then all of a sudden travel shut down for two entire years. And actually the, what the new normal looked like was totally unclear to us, let alone what would the strategy need to be to reduce. So we're in this place now where 2023 business travel flips back on, our emissions are rising, and now we have to take a new and a fresh look at how we address that. So There's this accountability there. The goal doesn't change the way we get there does. And we need to remain really open and accountable to our progress. I love the candor and humility with which you've described business travel as a setback in your sustainability report. I think if more companies were to talk as openly about their setbacks, we'd all learn more and there'd be more credibility for corporate sustainability work to begin with. So achieving your goals, Jess, requires thinking about scope one, two, and three emissions Help us understand what those scopes are and how they show up for your company. So for every industry and every business, it'll be different. For Atlassian, you can think of our scope one and two is really our own operations. And for us, it's going to be our buildings and the electricity that we're using in them, as well as heating and gas. And then scope three is going to be more our supply chain. So think about our purchase goods and services or capital goods. A bulk of it is really that. And then in addition, we also have business travel would be the second biggest bucket. But by far and away, actually, it's it's that supply chain piece. And if you're not in this world, good examples to think of, of what would be an Atlassian supply chain. Obviously, we're not manufacturing goods. We're a software company. So think of consulting companies or companies that potentially we're contracting with for outsourcing support. If we're opening up a new building, for example, those are the kinds of companies you, you could think of being in our supply chain. Continuing along your process, After you developed your goals, you then submitted them for approval by SBTI, which doesn't always happen quickly. Tell us what you learned about that process and how it went for you. So the Science-Based Target Initiative is well known for being a really rigorous organizing body for setting goals. And I think that intimidates some people and, and potentially even prevents them from getting started. 
And certainly there's a reputation that it takes some time to get your goal approved. So just to unpack our experience a little bit, the process really looked like first setting a scope one through three baseline. And then from there, figuring out based on the guidance from the science-based target initiative, what our goals needed to be. And those are our emissions reduction goals. So you pick your baseline year, and then you have to figure out what you need to reduce by in order to meet the science-based target criteria. We work with a consultant and thesis on that. We talk about that in our guide that made it, you, you don't have to be an expert is what I'm saying. You can find the help to figure out what your targets need to be. And like I said, the science-based target initiative has really clear guidelines. So that gives you a framework to work in. Once you have your goals, you submit them to the initiative, they review them, make sure they align with their criteria, send you back the approval. So in the end, I think it maybe took us six months to run that process. And actually it was not nearly as painful as I think it, it can feel. I will say that the work is not done there. And this is the new phase that I'm in now, which is that the first phase of the work gave us our interim targets. What our emissions reduction goals need to be from an FY19 baseline to FY25. Now we're almost there for FY25. At Lassian's fiscal year, it's actually FY24 already. So <laughs> we don't have a long time to meet those goals. And now we're starting to look long-term. So our net zero goal, the long-term goal is by FY40, and we'll likely need to set some new interim targets once we hit FY25. So we're actually in the process of resubmitting all of our goals to the Science-Based Targets Initiative to make sure that we're really clear on what our long-term emissions reduction needs to be and just clarity on what we do after FY25 if we need a new set of, of goals. So just to say that getting your goal approved, there's multiple steps and, and it's a journey and it's not a one and done. And I also think the science is changing. And so we have to all be prepared for the accounting standards to change and the guidelines from the Science-Based Targets Initiative to change. And, and you have to be keeping up with all of that. I'd love to get into some of the nitty gritty because I think that getting really specific about what it's taking for you to accomplish your goals will make this all more tangible and help others learn. So I know that buildings are a small part of your footprint, but something that you've mentioned and something that is really pervasive across the economy of a lot of companies needing to think about decarbonizing their buildings. What have you learned in the process about building sustainability and what's been the hardest parts of cutting building emissions? The hardest part for us is that most of our buildings are leased. So when we were looking at hey, what can we do to make the buildings more efficient? For example, you're limited a little bit more there than if we owned and, and operated our own buildings. The same is true just for even monitoring electricity by floor, for example. So being in a leased space is its own set of challenges. One of the things that we did, though, is put together lease guidelines so that as we went into new office spaces, we were really clear on, on what we were looking for and trying to line up those spaces with our energy goals. The huge opportunity that we had, though, is a new building that we're doing in Sydney, and we did have control over that one. And because we had this RE100 goal and our science-based target goal, we were able to work with the real estate team and have these goals be kind of core design principles for that new building in Sydney. And so now you've got a building that was designed with cutting carbon and energy efficiency from its sort of like very original inception and has some really great sustainability standards behind it. So I think the biggest lesson learned was just because you're in lease spaces now doesn't mean there's nothing that you can do. And certainly having these goals sets you up for success as you go into the territory of building your own. Yeah. And I think that relates also to your work around renewable energy as you realized you couldn't actually source renewable power for your leased buildings. So instead, you relied on virtual PPAs. Explain, what are virtual PPAs and what did you learn about them? 
This is another example where we, what we've said is go fast and then go far. So what we did to achieve that RE100 goal so quickly, as I told you, we did it in the first year, we were able to just purchase energy attribute certificates. And that's how we got to 100%. And we did it in the most impactful way possible, where we said, let's make sure that these EACs at a minimum are meeting RE100 requirements, but let's also try to make sure that we're purchasing them as close as to where we're using them, both in terms of time and geography. But of course, the downside of using EACs is that while we're continuing to generate demand for renewable electricity, we're not actually helping to finance new renewables getting on the grid. And we were really open that we knew like, hey, this is a move to go fast. Going far looks more like a virtual power purchase agreement. And we started exploring that straight out of the gate. And what a virtual power purchase agreement allows you to do is for Atlassian, we can still retire the EACs from the project. But if we enter into a long-term agreement with a developer, say 10 to 20 years, what we end up doing is financing the development of a new project that otherwise wouldn't exist. So for us, this is not what's required through RE100, but it very much fits with our philosophy of driving this transition to renewables. And to be totally honest with you, it took us years to find a VPPA that would work. And we were looking at different options given Atlassian size and scale. Our load is actually relatively small. All of our data centers, for example, are in our scope three. So you're just talking about our, our office buildings. And it was difficult to find a partner that could manage that size load. And that's where Evergreen came in, who was our, our partner for our first deal. And they really worked closely with us to find a contractual agreement that would work for our legal team and gave us the ability to enter our first VPPA here in the US. So the first project we've done is School Solar in Alabama, which also has this added community benefit side that was really important to us. Great. Of course, the vast majority of your emissions are scope three, as you mentioned. They primarily come from purchases of goods and services, capital goods, and work-from-home electricity. Let's start with the purchase goods and services. This is where your scope three are really someone else's scope one, and where cutting them is really about influencing those partners. So tell us, how have you worked to cut emissions from your vendors? This goal is interesting because to start out our supply chain goal, and again, this is part of our science-based target, is really about engaging our suppliers. That's the way the goal is written. And the idea with engagement is that if you can get your suppliers to set their own emissions reduction goals, ideally through the science-based target initiative, then when we look out five years, if all your top suppliers have these emissions reduction goals, as you move to an absolute emissions reduction target, everyone should be moving the right direction. So right now the focus is really how do we make sure everyone's got their own goal and so that they're on the right trajectory. And when you look at the number, it can sound intimidating. 65% of suppliers is what we have to engage, but really that just translates into roughly 15 different companies. So how do we really prioritize those top 15 companies and have conversations with them and also provide them support so that they can get on the pathway with us? And what we decided to do was really partner very closely with our procurement team. And what we did is we said, hey, how is procurement already engaging with these top 15 companies? And how do we kind of integrate this new ask to our suppliers as part of that? So we've done that through our supplier relationship owners, where we've had them make the ask directly to the suppliers and integrated it with their quarterly conversations. We also updated our supplier site so that the ask was really clear to our suppliers and provided them some general overview of what a science-based target is and what the ask is, the reality is it's been slow. Conversion has been slow. And, and that's not surprising, right? It takes companies 
time to realize that, hey, there's this new request from our customer and we have to get approval. And it's an ambitious goal. So there has to be some pragmatism on our part to understand that. So what we've done this year is we've said, okay, how can we remove more barriers here? And we brought on Rye Consulting. And what they're doing is helping us to provide an offering to our suppliers to help understand what a science-based target is, to do their, their first GHG baseline, basically get them started and help support them on the journey. So again, going back to that Atlassian team approach, this really is about us coming in and supporting our suppliers and us going this road together rather than leading with the stick, you could say. Let's talk transparency and accountability. Scope three is notoriously hard because of a lack of transparency into your partner's footprint, but I've heard it's getting better as more consistent reporting rolls out. Has this been a challenge for you? So for us right now, there is this way in which it's somewhat simple and that we just have to look at those top 15 companies and understand, yes, no, do they have a science-based target? And if they don't, where are they on the maturity journey? Are they putting out emissions data, for example? So right now, perfect data has not been the enemy of, of progress. I do think that we're moving in the right direction for a couple of reasons. One, you already have legislation that is requiring disclosure for companies globally. So we have CSRD coming out of Europe in California, we just passed two disclosure-related bills that require companies to share their scope one through three emissions. So this is sort of coming from a regulatory perspective. Secondly, the groundswell of companies asking their suppliers to disclose this data is increasing. Just for me at Atlassian, the number of requests I got from our customers for data from Atlassian has grown by probably 85%. Like I have just never seen this much inbound in my eight years at Atlassian. So we're not the only one. So I think if you're a supplier, you're looking at the regulatory environment, you're looking at the demand from your customers. And I think that's going to create the business case to have better reporting. The other thing I think is happening is we're just starting to see better tools out in the market to help us do it. So for example, Atlassian is using Watershed. That's going to help us track this data in a more scalable way than the manual approach we're taking today. Fantastic. Jess, work from home electricity is something that you've been thinking about too, and it's something that a lot of hybrid workplaces need to consider. How are you addressing these emissions? During COVID, we had already achieved our 100% renewable goal, but making that claim, knowing that everyone was working from home, just felt inauthentic and like we were not telling the full story. So we decided that we needed to kind of do right by the reality of the situation, even if the sort of accounting standards hadn't caught up yet. And so we talked about it and said, hey, technically everyone working from home would be in our scope three. And then therefore you would address that through offsets. But we wanted to follow the 100% renewable logic and kind of treat that work from home in the same way we were treating our offices. So instead we decided that we would purchase energy attribute certificates in equivalent of our estimated work from home electricity use. So this is an area where the accounting guidance hasn't totally caught up to the new ways of working yet and, and the reality of this post-COVID world. And we did the best that we could working with Anthesis to do an estimation. It's We don't have perfect data on everyone's work from home setup, but Anthesis put out a really good white paper and, and helped us to do the, the calculations. So while imperfect, I hope we're setting the example of don't just do the minimum of what's required and let's make sure that we are accounting for and reflecting these new ways of working. 
Jess, you mentioned before the difficulty with business travel having bounced back post-COVID. And I know that's been an area of difficulty, but you're members of the Sustainable Aviation Buyers Alliance. Tell us what that is and if it's been helpful. Just to sort of frame the problem, as we're looking at business travel right now, we've obviously seen not just a return to a new normal, but actually we're already surpassing our FY19 baseline. And that's just a reflection of company growth. We're a much bigger team now than we were in, in FY19. And when I look at my options for how I reduce business travel emissions, there are things I can do from a policy perspective. So for example, we looked at what's driving up emissions as it relates to business travel and realized that, hey, if you are not taking a direct flight, then that actually could contribute to higher emissions. So let's change our policy so that we're really supporting direct flights, even if it's going to cost us a little bit more. That's on the policy side. The other side of it is just business strategy. So we have this program at Atlassian called Team Anywhere, which means Atlassians can work from wherever they want. But it's also really important to us that we have moments of all coming together, and that's called intentional togetherness. So there is this new way in which, okay, we're all coming together at certain points of the year, and and how's that going to drive up emissions? And then the last thing, and actually the bigger driver, is how do we support our customers? So just holding space for the reality that this business travel is tied to our business strategy. And you can't, as a sustainability leader, totally disconnect from that. And so I think the biggest move has been engaging with our business leaders and understanding for the ones whose teams travel the most, why are we traveling? How are we traveling? What options do we have to shift travel over time in a way that is really in alignment with the business strategy? And what's been most surprising to me is business leaders saying, wow, I actually hadn't looked at the data this way. I have full confidence we can reduce emissions. Like, let's do this together. So just to say that even when it feels like this is an uphill battle, I'm finding so much opportunity. Now, that remains the priority. Emissions reduction remains the priority. In parallel, I want to have this sort of third option, which is exploring sustainable aviation fuel. And that's where the Sustainable Aviation Buyers Alliance comes in, is it puts us in community with other companies that are willing to be buyers and signal to the market that there are customers there. I don't know that that's an option today. In other words, as of right now, that's not a tool we can use per science-based target guidelines, but it may be in the future. And so just making sure we're kind of on the forefront of development there. A last question about emissions are residual emissions, something that your report talks about as well. What are residual emissions and how are you dealing with them? So even as we achieve our goal of net zero, there are always going to be residual emissions or emissions that you weren't able to reduce on your path there. And certainly Atlassian has those from our history, from when we got founded all the way through this year, and and we will in FY40. And the Science-Based Targets Initiative recently came out and said, hey, the expectation is you do a 90% emissions reduction, and then you cover that final 10%, that final leg of the mile with removals. And you can do that through offsets, for example. In thinking about this, we thought, okay, well, FY40 is a long way out there. In full transparency, there is some critique of offsets in general. And so let's be really thoughtful about how we approach this and make sure we do it in the most impactful way possible. And where we landed is we said, it doesn't make sense to just start buying offsets this year and then pat ourselves on the back because for FY24, we purchased offsets in 100% of the residual emissions that we had. What about our history? So we said, right, let's go back to FY02 when we were founded and make sure that we're purchasing offsets that go all the way back to then go and then through FY40, which is our net zero year. And the way that we've prioritized this is we've said, okay, we're going to start with 
the current year. And then as we have budget, we'll start chipping away at those past emissions. And part of getting approval for this strategy was making sure we had a funding mechanism in place that would be able to make good on our commitment and carry us all the way through FY40. There's a wide range of offsets. How do you think about quality? That is something that has been high on our list. So one of the things we talked about is making sure that we had integrated a climate equity framework into our purchasing. The other thing that was really important is that we worked with a third party. So we partnered with Carbon Direct. Our team is never going to be at the size and scale to audit every single one of these projects and run the due diligence that I think is required. So partnering with Carbon Direct means that we are getting that assurance that the projects are doing what they say they're doing. And even within that, as we're building our portfolio, we want to make sure that we've got a balanced one. So what's the mix of using technology versus nature-based solutions? And how does that change over time? And even when we're landing our projects that we're going to invest in, how are we looking at things like whose land is being used? How is it being used? What are the land rights in that area? Who's being compensated here? And really getting into the weeds on more of the social side. So This is not just about removing CO2, but actually a much more holistic look at how the project impacts both people and planet. Well, we've talked about developing the goals, pursuing the goals. Now it's time to talk about reporting on the goals, because of course, that's an important step in the process. I love that in your sustainability reports, you've kept the same straightforward, candid language that makes the Don't F the Planet guide so readable. It includes performance metrics going back five years and also a really clear framework of highlights, where you fell short, and where you're going to. But beyond your sustainability report, there are also formal ESG disclosures. How do you consider what reporting protocols you'll use and what have you learned in the process? When we first did our sustainability report, we were really clear that we were not going to use any external frameworks and that actually we were going to tell our own story here and have a really authentic account of the goals and our progress against them and just be really clear and kind of cut through some of the noise. But over time, what happened is we started getting questions from investors, for example, who were saying, look, we love your sustainability report. We love how open you are, but we also need a way of making comparisons between you and other companies. And some of these frameworks are used to be able to do that. Similarly, some of our customers were saying, hey, we're using this data to better understand our supply chain. So we started getting this inbound sort of demand for responding out against some of the frameworks. And it really wasn't until we had that that we started to look at it. And in looking at all of the frameworks that existed, we really felt like SASB most aligned with what we were getting asked for from folks like investors and customers. So just making sure, hey, if we're going to invest in reporting out against a framework, Let's make sure we're clear on who the audience is and who needs the information and why and that we're getting them what they need. So, you know, it is about being transparent, but not just for transparency's sake. We want to make sure that we're serving our customers. Well, thank you, Jess, for getting into the nitty gritty. I think for leaders building new sustainability programs, your report and hopefully this conversation should be really helpful. Let's end off on something a bit bigger picture. In your report, you include the statement that if it feels uncomfortable, you're at the right level of ambition. What's been most effective for you in building executive buy-in for uncomfortable levels of ambition? I think the biggest thing has been comparing the sustainability goals to any other company goal. And when I look at Atlassian, we have a history of setting big, ambitious goals where we know we're going to put the strategy and the prioritization and the teamwork behind getting after it. 
but we don't always have every answer and we often have to change course as we go. And so where I can lean on, Hey, we know we have a muscle as a business to do this and where I can also then back up. Here's why we're setting this goal and here's the data behind it. I found that we're really able to energize the team. Maybe my biggest lesson learned actually is that in this work, we often talk about sustainability as kind of a mix of mitigating risk and capitalizing on opportunity. And I think this sense around ambitious goals, it's really about that opportunity side. I have not found a business leader yet to get excited about the risk, but if I can show them the opportunity and show them the ambition behind it and what it could mean for us in the future, I find that folks really get excited about the challenge. Jess, thank you so much for the time today, for all the work that you're doing and for sharing so much with us. Fabulous. Thanks for having me, Jason. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again.